This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Annual Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Chris Godwin, the state director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Wildlife Services. She's here to let us know how to legally and ethically deal with problems that arise when wildlife gets just a little too close for comfort. We'll look at vultures and the damage they can cause along with other birds and wildlife. And Dr. Major's here, always ready to take your pet questions. To join our conversation, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464, or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. Good morning, Libby. Hope you're doing well this morning. Yes, doing great. Well, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, the annual event celebrated around the world on April 22nd to demonstrate support for environmental protection. It was first celebrated in 1970 and now includes events coordinated globally by the Earth Day Network in more than 193 countries. And a little bit of a subdued celebration this year due to the uh, worldwide uh, pandemic. Uh, How did you celebrate Earth Day, Libby? Uh, Well, I guess like most of us, I celebrated it right here, but I stayed outside pretty much the whole day and got a long list of birds and watched butterflies and I've got a male and no lizards uh, puffing up their chest and showing off for the little lady lizards. And uh, so it was a really good Earth Day for me. You know, I think uh, all of us going a little bit stir crazy, maybe uh, being confined and, and sort of having to limit our interaction with people. But again, I've, as we've mentioned on this program a number of times, we're real fortunate to be in Mississippi where we have some great outdoor uh, um, encounters and availability. My brother lives in New York City and there are places you can go out as well. But in, in the more urban areas, I think people maybe might be a little bit more stir crazy because they, they don't have the, the uh, access to nature that we have down here. Yes. Yeah, I think um, small towns tend to not have a place that you can walk to to enjoy the out of doors sometimes. So that's a challenge for people. Yeah, I know even at the park in Pearl, uh, my friend and I were walking yesterday and we saw a tiny little turtle. I I meant to take a picture of it to try to figure out what it was, but this was probably the size of uh, could fit in the palm of your hand. And it looked like he was kind of making his way uh, towards the uh, the pond. Uh, It had, you know, with all the rain we've been having, he had a lot of opportunity to get wet if he needed to. But like I said, looked like he was slowly making his way to a moister area. But, uh, you know, those are the fun kind of things that uh, if you'll stop and uh, take some time to smell the roses along the way, as they used to say, who knows what you'll see when you go out and about uh, these days. Definitely. Yeah, I found um, several uh, really interesting birds in my yard that I probably would have missed if I'd been going to work every day. So we've talked about the bears in Yosemite roaming more freely with no visitors in the park. And one of the other encouraging things that I've heard recently was that uh, with fewer beachgoers, there's more stability for endangered sea turtles. The Loggerhead Marine uh, Life Center in Juno, Juno Beach, Florida, has noticed that the sea turtle eggs are largely undisturbed. Leatherback sea turtles in particular are coming in strong this year, says a senior manager of research and data at the center. And, you know, that's one thing, uh, again, from my visits to my brother in Pensacola, 
when that when that's uh, those eggs are there, they put put up signs and everything uh, to try to keep them from getting disturbed. But a lot of times with human intervention, uh, they they don't fare very well. So it's good to see that kind of nature taking over, and and good to see a, a large crop of turtles this year. Yes, that's I, I saw that news too. That's very good news. Uh, so, Liddy, what uh, what sorts of birds have you been seeing and other creatures when you've been out and about? Yes, I have rose-breasted grosbeaks here right now, and they migrate through the state. They don't stay here and nest, so but they're a real treat. They're an unusual kind of a large bird, and they will come to your feeders. Uh, years ago, Paul planted mulberry trees. We had a big mulberry tree when we moved here that is since... Uh, we lost in a fire, but we've got mulberries back now, and we have a tulip poplar tree, and those two trees are incredible for attracting birds. So we've got Baltimore Oreos and Orchard Oreos in both of them, and cedar wax wings, and I just saw a, a, a yellow-breasted chat eating mulberries, and uh, the rose-breasted grosbeaks have been on the mulberries, so it's really been a lot of fun. We've covered up with mulberry fruit right now and the birds appreciate it when they're migrating they need to be able to stop and um, get a good meal oh i see a beautiful male just sitting resting right now rose-breasted beak, and he does have that bright red it's a, a bib black head and kind of a, a yellowy white beak and then a lot of yellow and black on his body so there's a lot of contrast and it's really a pretty bird uh, Dr. Major has joined us uh, via telephone. Good to have you with oh, us, good. Dr. Major. And I guess uh, the new normal now, things still going along fairly well at the clinic with your new method of, of uh, social distancing while still caring for pets? Everything's going pretty well. Uh, it, it does that does a degree of, what shall I say, uh, bureaucracy, <laughs> I don't know, difficulty. But uh, clients are very uh, understanding, sometimes uh I know sometimes they have to wait a little bit longer than they would like to, but we, we're we're moving along and uh, taking care of taking care of pets. Now, I've, I thought I saw something on the news last night again talking about uh, COVID nineteen in animals, uh, but what I'm still seeing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor Major, but there still appears to be no uh, transmission from our pets to us. The pets are able to get it, but as far as I can tell, at least from what we know so far, they can't transmit it to us. Is that correct? That's correct, and you know, uh, without any type of sens- sensationalism or anything like that, I think there are eight of the large cats now in the Bronx Zoo that uh, have tested positive, uh, tiger, lion, and uh, then there are a couple of domestic cats that were tested positive for uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, it's a dead dead end there, and as far as I know, all of these animals have recovered. Uh, and I don't think there are any cases reported in canines and dogs. So, you know, it's, it's it's cause for concern. And if someone in the family or uh, has a cat, uh, and they are they are positive for coronavirus, COVID nineteen, it's advised to keep you know the animals separate from from them, and to avoid avoid contact. But uh, there's no known evidence and no evidence that it has been spread from cats to people. 
Uh, and yeah, that's and the thing. I think we mentioned this last week. Another reason, maybe to uh, if if you have an indoor outdoor cat or a strictly indoor cat, uh, keep them inside because uh, that's the way they're going to contract anything. Would be kind of out roaming around the neighborhood, interacting with uh, some of the creatures that are out there. The the funny thing is, my cat he he goes. I guess he goes through stages where he wants to try to get outside, and he's in one of them. So he's managed to kind of slip out the door a couple of times, but so far he runs down the steps and gets like four steps into the driveway. And then just stops. So I don't know if he's maybe trying to figure out what's going on. But uh, so far, fortunately enough, I've been able to kind of snatch him and and bring him back in. So no no worries there. And I you know I'm sure he doesn't understand. But every time I bring him in, I'm like, you don't want to be out there. You know, you've got the the cushy life inside here. You know, nice place to sleep, food every day. So uh, you just stay in here and you'll you'll be fine. Right. That's that's wise, and it's it's. You know, we've always said that uh, in general, uh, inside cats have a lot longer lifespan than outside cats, and there are multiple reasons for that. Cat fights, automobile problems, uh, poisoning, curiosity kill the cat is a very truism, uh, both inside and outside, but even more outside. Cats have to investigate, and uh, it's, you know, and I know there are cats that are inside-outside cats that do quite well, but... uh, the basic recommendation here in general is to keep them inside. Uh, what about uh, respiratory issues in general? Is that something that, that our pets uh, usually have to deal with? Yes, it is. And some of it is seasonal. Some of it is allergies. Uh, there are some respiratory diseases in cats uh, that can uh, be very troublesome. Uh, rhinotracheitis is one. Uh, and usually kittens are affected early in their life and can really be a real problem. Uh, There are other viruses as well, and uh, rhinotracheitis is a virus. Uh, But yes, uh, and and our dogs, they go through uh, spells, if you will. And I think most of the time in the dogs, it is allergy causing them to have some respiratory issues. Of course, canine distemper, uh, which is a very serious disease, uh, can cause respiratory issues and pneumonia even. So that usually affects young dogs, but older dogs that are unvaccinated can come down with that disease. All right, time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll welcome our guest, Chris Godwin from the USDA Wildlife Services. Uh, back to the program. She's always ready to help with advice on how to handle wildlife that comes a bit too close. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour is Chris Godwin, the State Director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Wildlife Services. To join our conversation this morning with a question or comment, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464, or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll talk to Chris in just a minute, but we do have a pet email here for Dr. Major, and it says we have two cats and feed them Purina Complete Dry Cat Food. One cat is fine, but the other cat has 
flatulence problems and very soft bowel movements. Would a different food help with this? And could you recommend a food for us to try? If food is not the likely cause, what other uh, uh, reasons might this be occurring? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, there may be other reasons other than the food causing this cat to uh, to have flatulence. And, of course, that can be very worrisome uh, for uh, the pet owner. Uh there are other foods that might might help, and I will list a couple of those. One would be uh, feline ID, intestinal diet, uh, and uh, in some cases, an increase in fiber might help. Uh, some people will actually sprinkle a little Metamucil uh, on on the food uh, just to add fiber to that. Uh, interesting to know. I guess they're feeding dry food. Uh, based on what you said. Yeah, the Purina uh, complete dry food. Right. I would suggest trying another uh, another food. And as I said, ID, uh, it's made by Prescription Diet or Science Diet, would be where I would go first uh, to see if that's the case. The other thing would be if this cat has not been checked uh, by your veterinarian, I would suggest that it would be wise to get it in and have it checked just to be sure there are no underlying causes of this. All right. Very good. Thanks for that email there. And if you have an email that you'd like to send to us, it's animals at mpbonline.org. So as I mentioned, our guest for the hour is Chris Godwin, the state director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Wildlife Services. Chris, it's been a while since you've been on with us. Thanks for being on today. Uh, again, remind us a little bit about your background. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. And it's uh, good to hear your voice again. I haven't gotten to see you in a long time either. Um my background, I have a bachelor's degree from the University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse. And then I took a, a year off to work for an environmental consulting firm in New York City. Um, and after that, I uh, came here to Mississippi and attended Mississippi State, got my master's degree. And then I worked uh, for the U.S. Forest Service for about eight years and then um, switched careers a little bit and uh, jumped into uh, USDA APHIS Wildlife Services, and I've been with them going on 21 years now. All right. Uh, so my producer, Java, tells me that you were a big fan of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. I remember watching that show as a kid on Sunday nights right before Walt Disney came on. And um, just kind of got hooked on that and um, grew up in an outdoor family, too. So, But um, just getting to watch uh, all the adventures that uh, were on that show on Sunday night, that was uh, a, a fun thing to watch. And I'm sure Libby can relate to that, too. Um, you know, I think it hooked a lot oh, yes. of us at that, that age group, um, you know, into the wildlife field. Yeah, you know, I, they have so many choices now, kids do, of what they watch on TV. But at that time, Wild Kingdom was pretty much it. Yeah, I think we're, we're all dating ourselves a little bit here, but I remember watching that as well. And I had forgotten, but you're right. It came right uh, right before the, the, the Disney, the world, because uh, the, the Tinkerbell, she'd come on with yeah. her little thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is, was his, I guess his name was Jim, the assistant. But And again, they made jokes about this ever since. But it was always funny to me that Marlon would be, you know, safely ensconced somewhere and Jim would run out and, you know, fight the alligator or something like that. So Marlon was the smarter of the two sometimes, I think. Yeah, Jim was a sacrificial lamb. I think a lot of times on that show. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do as director of the Department of uh, Agriculture Wildlife Services. 
Sure. So our role is, is to protect agriculture from wildlife damage, um, and then we also protect property and, and do a lot of work in, in the human health and safety area as well, um, particularly with zoonotic diseases um, and protection of aircraft. So uh, that's kind of what we do in a nutshell. We're, we're the federal side of, of that part of, of the wildlife world. Uh, how have things changed for you and, and the folks you work with uh, during the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic? Um, our field folks are still pretty much doing what they do. They've had to make some modifications in terms of, you know, the social distancing and um, a lot of those adjustments that we've all had to make. Um, but they are still working full time. Um, those of us who are more office oriented are, are doing the whole telework nightmare. Um, so... You know, be glad when we get kind of out of that mode, but um, we're doing the best we can as far as, you know, our office type stuff, um, you know, the computer stuff and doing a lot more conference calls and, and those kinds of things, I think, like most people are. Um, but we're still pretty much full scale doing what we normally do. We're visiting today with Chris Godwin, the State Director of the U.S. Department of Agricultural Wildlife Services on creature comforts. If you have a question about uh, maybe some, think that some wildlife's getting a little too close to comfort, Chris might be able to give you some assistance. And Dr. Major's here, ready for some pet questions. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Chris, how does a homeowner or landowner know when the problem they have is something that your office could help with and maybe not just local pest control uh, services? Well, certainly a lot of the local pest control offers the same assistance that we do. So, you know, it's a personal preference, you know, or we may direct them to a couple of the local pest folks if, if it's something that we can't get to. But Generally, if, if it's affecting your home in a negative manner or, you know, you feel threatened by some type of wildlife um, or you just have a general question, you know, folks are free to call our office um, in our state offices in Starkville, and that number is 662-325-3014. Um, and, and we'll work with you over the phone on giving you some direction on um, how to go about solving the problem. A lot of times people can do it themselves. It's can be a matter of simply, you know, not feeding different animals um, or adjusting human behavior um, or putting things up like fencing or, or some kind of a detractant um, just to change, you know, either our behavior or the, or the wildlife behavior. Um, and sometimes, you know, it takes a little bit more um, active involvement, but, but a lot of times it's just a matter of, you know, trying to make environments unfriendly for the animals so that they'll move on. Uh, so let's uh, spend a few minutes uh, talking about vultures. If you would, start off by telling us the difference between uh, black vultures and turkey vultures. Sure. So um, those are the two species that we have here in, in Mississippi. They're both very social birds, and they will be sometimes separate. Sometimes you'll find them together. Um, they're large. They have wingspans uh, between five and six feet. Um, they are somewhat diurnal, so you'll see more activity from them during, you know, mornings or evenings, and then a lot of times during the rest of the day, they're um, floating basically on wind or thermal currents. Black vultures tend to be a little bit smaller than turkey vultures. Turkey vultures are red when they mature. The blacks are a lot darker, more dark gray, all black feathers. Um, turkey vultures will have a little bit of brown 
to them um, with white edges along the wings. Um, but black vultures will have that white near the tips. They both um, are somewhat scavenger-oriented, so, you know, you see them on roadkills and things like that. Um, the black vulture is definitely more aggressive. Um, they're kind of the nasty little brother of uh, the turkey vulture. Um, and they'll use a lot more different types of habitats. They'll be in, in mixed hardwoods, mixed forested areas, um, as well as fields, whereas the turkey vulture tends to prefer a little bit more open areas. Um, turkey vultures have a pretty high sense of smell versus the blacks. Um, so a lot of times the blacks will follow the turkey vultures around to find food and then push the turkey vulture out of the way and, and take over. Um, and that's that aggressive behavior um, that the black vultures have. Well, yeah, that, that they'd sound like uh, quite rude birds there. That's uh, <laughs> let someone else do all the work and then push them out of the way to get to the spoils there. Uh, yeah. So when we talk about things uh, damage that uh, black vultures might cause, what are what are some things that we would be concerned about? So the, the biggest one, um, actually, there's two. One, the one that we're working with a lot more than we have in the past is with cattle operators. Um, black vultures are very aggressive um, when a cow is calving. Uh, and they will get on that cow while she's giving birth to the calf, and, and we will kill the calf. And a lot of times do a lot of physical damage to the cow, especially if she's on the ground um, or trying to get after the afterbirth. And that, that is a tremendous amount of damage in our state financially. Um, you know, we've had cattle producers that, that will lose six or seven calves in a season um, for this black vulture issue. So, um, and then the other issue is property damage, whether that's rooftops. Um, we've seen them rip uh, windshield wipers off cars, the rubber sealant around the car, getting in tractor equipment, tearing the rubber out if they can get inside a tractor, boat seats. Um, it's just um, coax cable uh, is another one that, for whatever reason, they tear up. So lighting systems go out, a lot of damage to cell towers, um, and just... A little bit of everything. They're, they're, they're really a nuisance um, and can be really difficult to work with. So with Chris, the, is, that, is that damage more likely to be from black vultures than turkey vultures also? Yeah, almost all of this damage is yeah. almost all specific to black vultures. Very rarely do I see a lot of damage from turkey vultures. Most of it is blacks. So if, with, on a car or something, if they're trying to get at the, the rubber ceiling, is that so that they can get in the car to shelter or do they do they eat the rubber we don't uh, it's not to get in the car there's some affinity to rubber and i don't know this is where we need more research to answer the question um if there's a chemical in the rubber that they're going after or if they're just bored or what we we don't know we honestly don't know we don't have an answer to that one yet the the picture of the black vulture gets worse and worse. They're bored delinquents that go around causing all kinds of. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're the bullies. They are definitely the bullies. Uh, Libby, do you have any uh, encounters or stories about uh, vultures? Well, I you know have had some encounters with both, and that's why I asked because I thought it was almost always the black vulture, and then the turkey vulture, I guess, gets blamed. We had a nest of a turkey vulture once uh, close to us, and it was just so much fun for weeks. We could 
kind of sneak up on them with our binoculars and watch. Uh, they like to nest. Now, I guess this is where I found them, and I've heard this is common. It was a big tree that had gone down. And so in the crown of it, you know what a mess that is when limbs are broken and all. So right in the, the biggest, messiest part of the, the big crown that was down on the ground is where they chose to nest. So it would have been hard for dogs or even coyotes or anything to really get in there to the babies and the eggs. And so it seemed like a very protected place, but it was low enough that, you know, you could kind of get close and see what was going on. But. Um, I've not had damage from black vultures, but I've worried about it because sometimes I see a, a, you know, maybe two dozen clustering somewhere close to our house. But so far, they've always moved on. Libby, we, we've had uh, a vulture that nests every year in an old barn where part of the uh, tent is off of the roof. And oh, yeah. actually, the, the vulture goes down into the old, old barn and has a nest there. Uh, and this has been going on, I don't know whether it's generational or not, but uh, I can say for the last 10 or 12 years, I know uh, that we've seen seen that. And of course, you know, the baby vultures are pretty cute. Uh, they're fluffy and downy. And, uh, fluffy white, and, yes. Fluffy and they, right, and they, they make a little hissing sound uh, if you disturb them. Uh, but apparently they've all managed to get out at some point out of that barn going up through the through the roof uh this is an aside uh you guys that travel uh i-55 uh headed to i-20 which is where i go to work every day uh there's a tremendous number of vultures that roost on those billboards uh and i've always played a game finding out which attorney has the most of all vultures on, on, on the line. And I'm not going to say who, who is winning, but uh, they, I noticed, though, that they do their droppings. They, it tends to smear those billboards at some point uh, because they're roosting there, and uh, I'm sure that's some economic issue uh, with, with the billboards. And yeah, well, that's the same thing with the cell phone towers and stuff. It's a slip, trip, fall hazard. So when you get that guano build up, it, it causes a lot of safety issues. Absolutely. Uh, we need to take another break. When we get back, we'll talk to Chris about some possible solutions to maybe help control these black vultures. And we're looking for your questions and comments. We're visiting today with Chris Godwin, the state director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Wildlife Services. If you want to join our conversation, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. It's one 672 7464 or email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. 
I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest for the hour is Chris Godwin. If you want to join our conversation, the phone number is one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show as well. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Chris, we've talked about some of the damage these black vultures can do. What are some of the possible solutions to try to limit uh, the damage that they can cause? Well, the first thing you've got to remember about black vultures is they um, have a very strong affinity for wherever it is they're staying. So to get rid of them is like trying to get you to move out of your house. It's you got to think of it kind of along those same lines. It's, it's going to take some persistence and, and some work um, to try and get them to move away from whatever area they're causing the damage, whether it's your house or an office building or whatever, roof site. Um, and so the first thing that we try and tell folks is, is to use harassment, but you're going to have to harass you know, for two or three weeks and, and do it consistently. And whether that's banging pots and pans or shooting pyrotechnics up, working with the local police department, um, you know, whatever that situation looks like, it's going to have to be something that's really persistent, and it's going to take some work and some time. Um, they're not going to move just readily. Um, the other thing that has shown some promise and that we've used quite a bit is, is basically making an effigy or a fake vulture um, and hanging those upside down in a roof site. Um, for whatever reason, they don't like it. Um, and it's, a, it's an old technique that people used to use with crows many years ago. Um, vultures, it, it seems to work fairly well. Um, so we use them a lot with cell tower issues, um, and even in some roof sites, um, and the birds will move, not necessarily all the time for forever, but, um, it does help reduce a lot of damage in bird numbers, um, in different areas. So other things, um, again, the banging the pots and pans, pyrotechnics, water sprinklers sometimes work, um, you know, it's just a matter of getting really creative and, and, and trying to use a lot of non-lethal techniques before having to result to a, to a lethal usage. Um, there's a lot of work that's getting started in this area. Vultures obviously aren't really a sexy subject, so to speak, um, um, that researchers have wanted to tackle. But because of the amount of damage and the amount of interest picking up, there's um, some promising research starting to come out with these guys. So hopefully we'll get some more non-lethal tools that, that will work on these guys to get them to, to kind of move away and, and reduce a lot of damage folks are having. So what about the, the black vulture population in Mississippi? Is this a, a nuisance for all parts of the state? Yep, yep. We're seeing it everywhere, and we're seeing all different kinds of damage everywhere. So from, you know, Jackson, the Flowood area, um, you know, Dr. Major talked about those billboards. I've seen that same stuff down there on those same exact billboards. Um, again, the cattle stuff is statewide. Um, cell phone tower stuff is statewide. Power transmission lines, um, all of it. We're, we're, we're seeing it from the coast all the way up to Memphis. All right. We've got a caller. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, oh, uh, Libby. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that I think with all the – while we're dissing them a little, we need to be reminded of the good things of the eco-services that vultures provide. The Absolutely. fact that they um, get rid of all the dead carcasses on the road, and it really uh, does a great service in keeping disease down. Can you that's address exactly that a little right. bit? Yep, nope. and that's why we're trying to really enforce the non-lethal usage of tools, because it's not necessarily a bird we want to get out of the environment because of those things. 
Um, but, you know, we do want to reduce the damage and the financial impacts that, that various people are experiencing. And and to me, the size and the way they look, every time I see them, you have know, a drive-by of something, to me, they're they're just fascinating birds to look at. And and so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's as we were saying, it's the, the younger brother, juvenile delinquent, moved into the basement and can't get out of him, black vultures that we really should be worried about. <laughs> We've got a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Kathy, who's called in from Tupelo. You're on the air with us, Kathy. Go ahead, please. Okay. Um, good morning. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was listening, I listened to your program, Creature Comfort, a lot. Uh, but I, you mentioned about the vultures eating, uh, the rubber around the windows. And, uh, when I moved back from Georgia to Mississippi, I lived by a soybean field. And I read up on soybeans, what they were good for. Henry Ford, um, there's a story in there where he piled soybeans. Um, they're on the desk of um, the guys, you know, that come up with different ideas. I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> not smart about the word, but um, they came up with using a soybean base in the rubber uh, hoses and everything. And uh, that is probably why your squirrels and your rats go underneath the cars and chew on the wires. It has to do with the soybean uh, they smell the soybean, and this possibly may be why the vultures eat that around the windows. Now, that's just my idea. That might be something y'all can just check into and let us all know. All right, uh, Kathy, thanks for your call. Okay, uh, thank you. Chris, any any thoughts on that? Hey, it's worth a look, and, and I've heard that same thing with um, the reason that squirrels and rats chew wiring up under, you know, cars and stuff. So, and I've had that happen with uh, one of my work vehicles recently too. So, and that that damage is expensive. Um, we can certainly bring that up and mention it to some research folks and and let them run that rabbit and see where it goes. All right, uh, let's uh, uh, transition our discussion just a bit and talk about some uh, fish-eating birds. What type of birds uh, do we have in Mississippi that are fish eaters? Well, we have quite a few. We have the double-crested cormorant, um, which is probably um, our most common fish-eating bird. Um, the American white pelican is another one that um, you see quite a bit um, and more and more frequently on a lot of our waterways. Um, all of our heron species, for the most part, are great blue heron, little blue, um, green, um, and then the great white egret. Um, so these are all different types of fish-eating birds um, that are commonly seen around Mississippi um, and that we work with occasionally, particularly with catfish industry. Yeah, I was going to think that uh, the aquaculture uh, industry in Mississippi would really be uh, affected by these. Uh, what other sort of negative effects do these uh, fish-eating birds have on, on our state? Primarily, two. Um, one is consumption and, and damage of fish. Um, and that, that one's probably one of the biggest ones. And then disease spread is the second one, particularly with um, American white pelicans. Um, but occasionally cormorants and some other birds um, may spread some stuff as well. And I would guess, again, like we mentioned with the vultures, they, they, these birds aren't all bad, but they, they're doing some things. And so uh, maybe, and again, it's, uh, when we try to deal with uh, the, the issues that they cause, what are some solutions for, for these fish-eating birds? Yeah, so a lot of these guys, just like the vultures, they're a native species. Um, the, the thing that has probably trans, well changed a little bit, especially with the double-crested cormorant, is, is they were 
um, known to be fairly migratory and non-nesters in Mississippi, and, and that has somewhat changed. So that, that dynamic in their ecology and behavior um, is something um, fairly new within the last 20 years. And that's probably due to the amount of um, fish availability um, with the catfish industry growth um, that happened um, that, that may have caused some of that change in behavior. Um, as far as what tools and stuff are available, we do a lot of non-lethal work um, with cormorants and pelicans, primarily harassment, um, where we coordinate our harassment efforts um, across the industry um, using pyrotechnics. Uh, we use scarecrows, flagging, uh, propane cannons, um, just trying to keep those birds off the catfish facilities um, and push them more to where natural food sources are and whether that's rivers or lakes or, you know, other availability, but, but away from production areas. But it does seem sort of like one of the overriding uh, strategies is, you know, make them uncomfortable in, in the area that we're trying to protect, as, as you said, so that they might go uh, some, somewhere else for the food and the other things that they're looking for in, say, the catfish ponds. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'm trying to change behavior. Uh, what about Canadian geese? Uh, what could a landowner do when dealing with maybe if, if they seem to have uh, too many Canadian geese in their area? Yeah, that one is about to start hitting our, our phone lines here pretty soon. Um, you've got eggs hatching right now and, and goslings around and the populations are tripling. Um, landowners, you can harass geese pretty much any way you want to as long as you don't harm or injure the birds. So, again, pots, pans, flagging, don't put out food. You know, a lot of times people are putting out bird seed and things like that. You may temporarily need to remove um, some food sources for a while. Again, make the environment as unfriendly as you possibly can. Um, if they're eating, like, grass and things like that, there are some uh, uh, chemicals out there that you can buy that are taste aversion type things. Um, that you can spray. Um, local co-ops a lot of times carry some of that kind of stuff. Um, they'll make the birds, you know, give a bad taste in their mouth, and they'll they don't like it, and they'll move on. So again, it's just trying to to make things unfriendly for them, make them uncomfortable, and and go find someplace else. These guys, though, I, I know there's some geese at the park where I walk in Pearl, and they're actually rather large birds, and that can be somewhat intimidating when you see them running towards you. So maybe the harassment uh, techniques from a distance, I guess. Yeah, in this time of year, geese are really protective of their, their nests and their young. So you don't really want to get in between them if you can help it. Um, it they are a large bird. I have had them knock me over um, once or twice just trying to, to – do some work with, with chicks and eggs in the past. Um, you know, they'll hit similar like the vultures and stuff do. Um, the other thing to watch out for, again, is that guano. It does create, you know, some slip-trip fall hazards, you know, on, on park sidewalks and if they're anywhere around schools or nursing homes, things like that. Um, there can be some disease issues related to an overpunch of geese as well. So E. coli, elevated E. coli levels, things like that. All right, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's time for our last break of the hour. If you missed any part of today's show, make sure to subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Creature Comforts, or you can download the MPB Public Media app. Back to wrap up the program after this last break. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, 
and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest this hour is Chris Godwin, the state director of the U.S. Department of Agricultural Wildlife Services. Just a reminder that if you missed any of today's program, subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcasting app, search for Creature Comforts, or download the MPB Public Media app. Uh, We do have an email here that says, in our neighborhood in Petal, Mississippi, swallows are all over the place right now. They're beautiful little birds, and I love watching them fly, but they're building nests and leaving droppings all over the entrance of our homes. People have recommended different things like Burdex, aluminum foil, plastic bags, fake owls, fake snakes, but we're getting mixed results. Any suggestions for preventing them from building nests? Chris, uh, why don't you tackle that one first, if you could? Yeah, that's a tough one. We deal with that one every now and then. And all those suggestions are things that we would do to, um, you know, hanging bitch clean up on the wall to, to keep that nest material from, from building up, um, any kind of exclusion. Um, swallows, again, are one of those birds that, you know, once they find an area they like, they're really, really tough to get rid of. Um, and once they have eggs in a nest, then it takes a depredation permit or, or something from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to really, you know, start working with them um, more aggressively. But if you can try and prevent the whole nest building from the very get-go, um, that's really the best thing you can do. And it's probably getting tough this time of year to get it uh, to that point because they've probably already started. But um, those are they're all the primary suggestions and tools that, that we would use. Uh, Libby, any yeah. thoughts? Yeah, I've I've had suggestions from people. I've never had that problem myself, but um, the old rubber snake thing, uh, you might not be able to get rid of them this season like you would want to, but be proactive next spring and early on if you hang some rubber snakes out there uh, in the areas where they nested before, just make it disagreeable to them so they won't come back and nest. And if you... um, catch on early enough that they're trying to nest in a place that you really don't feel like you can tolerate it, then, you know, start discouraging them from that point. And again, it's those things, right, Chris, like noise and uh, a pie plate hanging from the ceiling or the rubber snake thing sometimes works. Uh, yeah, maybe just something some to discourage. Huh? Anything like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, the good thing is that the mosquito population is probably getting it. <laughs> hit, but Okay, one of the things that my neighbor, I think, has success, uh, actually took some string wide apart, you know, not not where the birds hit it or anything like that, but put these little uh, disc uh, reflectors or mirrors, hung those on the string, and the swallows stopped coming. If you understand what I'm saying, making kind of a crisscross with string. That's uh, a great idea. And put the little, little little reflectors on there. And actually, that did help deter them. All right. Uh, Chris, the other thing I'm thinking, too, is there are all these different things that have mixed results and maybe combining a couple of them or sort of using one for a little while. And it seems like if maybe uh, the birds are getting used to seeing that fake snake and think, ah, that's just a rubber snake, maybe switch and go to one of the other ideas. 
Yep, we keep as many tools in the toolbox as we can, and we use it as much as we can. So if, if one tool doesn't work, a combination of tools or move into a different tool, that, that's pretty much, you know, kind of the game plan. All right. Uh, our friend Bill from Greenwood is on the line. Uh, Bill, good morning. What do you have for us? I've got a comment that i got a question. Uh, first comment, I was in Vicksburg a while ago. There was an abandoned uh, gas station with the metal roof. Uh, on the uh, interstate, must have been over a thousand swallows in there. I, they were all nesting at the same time, and it was really amazing. But uh, also, uh, what I come, you don't see any kind of vultures or even crows here in the Delta. You go to the hills, you see plenty of them, but not in the Delta for some reason. You know, I've had you know people ask me that question, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know if it's just a lack of preferred habitat or just it's so wide open. You know, again, it's one of those things I just don't know. All right, Bill, we appreciate your call. Always good to hear from you from uh, Greenwood. Uh, Chris, uh, another common animal that uh, I think a lot of people have encounters with, maybe sometimes unpleasant ones, and that is deer. What about some solutions for trying to limit uh, deer's access to our garden, flower beds, and yards? Yeah, so this time of year especially, we get a lot of deer calls. So um, any kind of fencing that you can put up that's fairly high, um, you can hang flagging on it. If you have an electric fence, um, you know, it doesn't hurt to put, you know, a little bit of peanut butter or something on there and let them go ahead and get zapped. Um, You know, we do recommend that a little bit. Um, There are different scent-type products that you can try and put out. Um, again, try and make the environment as unfriendly as you possibly can. If you're putting bird seed out and they're starting to eat that bird seed, you might want to just not feed the birds quite so frequently, you know, feed them every couple weeks instead of every day. Um, you know, again, it's just trying to change that behavior, but sometimes it can be really tough. Deer, deer can be pretty stubborn when they find stuff they like. It, it takes a lot to, to get them to move away from it. Uh, there are several airports in Mississippi. Uh, what do, uh, are the challenges that airports face when it comes to wildlife encounters? So birds is, is always the big one. And so airports do a lot of what we call anti-wildlife management, which is kind of opposite of everything most people ever hear about. Um, but they do a really good job at, at keeping the grass height low, which helps restrict a lot of different species. Um, they do their best to keep water off airports because water is a big attractant obviously with the amount of rain we've had the last three weeks that's really tough um and then they do a lot of harassment they use a lot of different tools like you'll see the fake owls and different things a lot of times hung up propane cannons um a lot of the airports have those installed and use those um and then they'll use their fire department or other staff to chase birds off the airport, you know, when they know they've got flights coming in. So they they do a lot of work when it comes to wildlife management on on their facilities. Uh, What is a propane cannon? How does that work? So a propane cannon is is basically a big cannon that runs off a propane tank. Um, And so you can set it to discharge, um, and it it emits a loud booming sound when that gas builds up and, and then it fires off. Um, and they're really kind of neat. So you can set them to go every 30 seconds. Um, some of them are automated um, with a, an entire system. So you can hit a button and trigger three or four to go off at different times, or you can do them sequentially all the way down, like the length of a runway to push birds off. Um, so it's a pretty elaborate system, but it can be pretty simple as just having one cannon.
All right, uh, got about a minute left, Chris. If you would, at the top of the show, we kind of talked about the uh, the assistance activities that uh, the USDA Wildlife Services do in Mississippi. If you would, maybe quickly recap what what your agency does to help out. Yeah, so we protect um, primarily agriculture, so a lot of our farmers and stuff from wildlife damage, um, but also some human, human health and safety issues, and, and occasionally some property um, damage issues. People, um, we can provide technical assistance where we can talk you through getting help or, you know, we can actually physically go out and provide help or recommend you to somebody else um, that can help you out. So our state office is in Starkville on campus at Mississippi State, and the office number is 662-325-3014, and from there we can direct you to one of our field folks if we need to. And if that case, uh, one of the field workers might be able to actually come to your your land and sort of help you assess what's going on and and find out what the best uh, situation for control would be? That's correct. All right. Uh, That's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, You've been listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We appreciate uh, Chris Godwin for joining us today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners just like you. If you need to hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and Chris Godwin, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.